0: Hello and welcome to the Taco Tuesday Theology Show with your host, Danny Powell. For many of us, going through life in an increasingly secular world is proving a challenge to navigate. Each week, we take your questions about modern life and answer them using the lessons revealed in the scriptures. Now, grab yourself a taco and let's get to this week's question. Hi, this is Steve from Nacogdoches. A lot of times we're faced with political issues, and one of the questions a lot of people have is, if I must choose between the lesser of two evils, I'm still choosing evil. How do we deal with that?
1: Whenever I hear this statement, that we're being forced to choose between the lesser of two evils, I understand that within the political realm, someone is trying to define their opponent or give one a reason as to why they're going to vote the way they are, to not offend them. However, the problem here is any time you have to choose between people you're going to be choosing between less than morally perfect people. The Bible is very clear about this. King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. That word filthy is a translation of the Hebrew word edah, which means the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. Therefore, these righteous acts are considered by God as repugnant as a soiled feminine hygiene product. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we read, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are all less than perfect. The last perfect person to come into the world was nailed to a tree and crucified. And speaking of Jesus, and I believe I just was, we read in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25.
2: Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man."
1: He knew what was in a man. In Jeremiah, we read, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learning from Scripture the state of humanity, one wonders how do we deal with it? Even if we only vote for people who claim to be Christians, that isn't the answer either, because daily we are reminded of the moral failures of our religious leaders. Ultimately, we need to let God choose who will serve him. The first patriarch of the entire nation of Israel is Abraham. You often hear in the scriptures about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of twelve sons who would go on to birth the twelve tribes of Israel. Abraham was picked by God to be the father of many nations. In Genesis chapter 13, God tells him, Lift your eyes now and look from this place, where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Later in chapter 15, God numbers Abraham's heirs as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Now here is a man chosen by God. Was Abraham morally perfect? Of course not. Right off the bat, Abraham falls short by having an extramarital affair with his wife Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and he has an illegitimate child with her. Then we read in Genesis chapter 20,
2: and Abraham journeyed from there to the south, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart for I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things into their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is the kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus, she was rebuked.
1: If Abraham, the patriarch of the entire nation of Israel, the man that God promised his descendants would number more than the stars in the heavens and all of the dust in the land of Canaan, were running for political office today, could you vote for him? He's a well known adulterer, he's a well known liar. Earlier in Genesis, Abraham lies to Pharaoh about his wife Sarah being his sister, but not his wife. But then, after those two scandals, we discover that she is his half-sister. Leviticus 18.9 specifically prohibits a man having sex with the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. So now we can add incest to his list of qualities. Indeed, the God-fearing man could not vote for a man with so many moral failings. No matter who Abraham was running against, he'd be one of the evils that you are choosing. Should the Christian even participate in politics? If all I'm going to be doing is choosing between the lesser of evils, why bother at all? I will tell you that followers of Christ need to engage our society. Jesus commands us to proclaim the gospel to everyone. We need to live as righteous as we are able with God's help. And one of the ways that we influence and engage our society is by voting. Proverbs 28:12 says, When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, men hide. When choosing whom to vote for, we need to look not so much at an individual's moral failures that are no more egregious than our own. Remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but whether or not that person is the one God would choose to do His will. That can be difficult, but we can usually find common ground with a person based on the values that they espouse. Now, I'm trying not to be political in this podcast, but a good example is the abortion debate. I get criticized for being a one-issue voter. The argument goes, if the candidate believed in everything else you believed in except for that one thing, could you vote for that person? Now, I will tell you the answer is moot because someone that believes in killing babies is most likely not going to agree with most of the other issues that are important to me. I have yet to hear from that candidate. We need to choose candidates that share our common Christian beliefs. Proverbs 14.34 tells us, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Rather than phrasing the issue as choosing between the lesser of evils Frame the question in your mind as selecting the one closest to God's will. If you aren't sure you know what God's will is, I discussed how to hear and discern the will of God in Episode 1 of the Taco Tuesday Theology Show. You can find it in the archives on our website. Regardless of the outcomes of elections, we must understand that God is sovereign and in control of the situation. Paul writes in Chapter 13 of the Letter to the Romans.
2: Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves.
1: Now, earlier I mentioned Abraham, and I could have used other examples of flawed men that carried out God's will. Jacob The father of the twelve tribes used trickery to steal his brother's blessing and inheritance. Moses murdered a man. The Apostle Matthew was certainly not a man the average Jew would have voted for. He was a Roman collaborator and a traitor to his people. Yet God chose him. Paul, who wrote around two-thirds of the New Testament and framed the majority of our theology, persecuted the early church. The other apostles were afraid of him when Paul arrived in Jerusalem because they thought he was there to either imprison or to kill them. None of the people God uses for His purposes are perfect by any means. In 1 Corinthians 1.27 we read, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. That said, let's get back to Abraham. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God asked Abram, who later becomes Abraham, to leave his home and his country, and he makes Abram three promises, a relationship with God, numerous descendants, and land. The only problem is that both Abram and his wife Sarah are both old and childless. Abraham has no heir. They have to leave their homeland, and they don't even know who this God is. Now, Abram obeys without signs or miracles. He has no scriptures, no traditions on which to draw. So Abraham has to place his trust in this nameless God. The ultimate test of Abraham's faith came in Genesis chapter 22 when he is asked to sacrifice his son. God had promised that Abraham's descendants would come through Isaac. So the level of faith that he displays is quite remarkable. Abraham trusts God And takes his son, as directed, up a mountain. At the very last minute, God intervenes and spares Isaac's life by providing a ram for the sacrifice. Afterwards, God reiterates his promises to Abraham of land, descendants, and a personal relationship. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews declares Abraham a hero of the faith, from chapter 11.
2: By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, for one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude innumerable as the sand by which is the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having them seen them all far off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say... Such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten Son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called."
1: And so it is. The believer in Christ Jesus should always look to God when deciding who to support when given the opportunity to vote. Rather than looking at the moral fiber of the individual, look at the bigger picture. Look at what the person currently stands for and not what they promise. Pray. Pray for guidance and let God show you the one whom He has chosen. Then, and only then, go and vote.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Taco Tuesday Theology. If you have a question you'd like us to answer from a biblical worldview, please go to our website, www.tacotuesdaytheology.com and click on the message button. You can send the message right from your smartphone or computer. Maybe next week, we'll answer your question. New episodes post every Tuesday afternoon. Until next time, pass the guacamole and keep praying.